Hello, welcome to Loud and the Words, the podcast about ideas that improve lives. I'm Jules Pretty. In this episode, we're talking about the lived experience of work, how culture affects the workplace, how change management works or does not, and how the importance of place changes the way that we think about work. So I'm delighted to welcome our two guests today, uh, Louise Nash and Danielle Tucker from the Essex Business School at the University of Essex. So welcome, Louise and Danielle. Um, now, you both study the world of work, um, private and public contexts, um, the organisational failures, the gender inequalities that are deeply embedded, um, long-standing problems that have been challenged of course the norms by the latest two years of plus of pandemic so when the black plague tripped along in the 1340s it led to fundamental change the peasants revolt labor markets across europe completely changed um everything um about the world of work um uh, was shifted perhaps forever at that time so when we look at how things are happening here could you just say a little bit about your kind of observations about uh, what is changing? Are things getting better or indeed worse um, in the world of work? So, Danielle. Yeah, so thanks, George. I, I think you're right. It's been, you know, a time of great upheaval for a lot of people, a time of great uncertainty for a lot of people and for organisations as well. So, you know, organisations are having to make big changes about the way um, they conduct themselves and the way they do work and the way they work with their employees um, and for employees as well and for individuals you know they've had their own individual experiences in the last couple of years um, that have been very different to their lives were before and I think what's really important to remember is that all of those experiences that they've had and their interpretations of those are impacting on the way they see work, the way they see their relationship with their employer, um, the way they see their, their lives both inside and, and outside of work. So yeah, I think lots and lots of change at the moment. And we don't know if that's good or bad yet. I'm sure for some people it'll be good and, and for some people it'll be bad. So, But it's definitely not temporary. It's, it's definitely it's, it's not temporary. Yeah. I think this is just the start. Yeah. Okay. Louise. Hello, Jules. Thank you. Um, yeah, I, I agree with everything that Danielle said. I think at the moment we're in a kind of um, a sort of a stasis period, really, because we seem to be shifting from thinking, oh, everything's just going back to normal or, oh, this is this is an unbelievable upheaval. Nothing is going to be the same again. Work has changed immeasurably. And I was thinking about this when I was sort of driving in this morning and thinking everything does seem almost exactly the same. But of course, it isn't. You know, people have been through these huge changes. Organisations are trying to grapple with these ideas of hybrid work. How is that going to affect us? How is it going to affect us economically? How is it going to affect the retention of people? So there's there's certainly an awful lot to look at. And at the moment, I think we are sort of not quite sure which way the wind is blowing, really. And we're, we're waiting to see. Mm. So the cultures of, of workplaces how they are formed, the norms, how we relate one to another, how equality or inequality plays out is the foundation for these sorts of changes. Um, and when we, when we, these changes have been kind of forced upon us and the whole world, really. But when we're deliberately trying to make things better in some sort of way, how do we then think about, um, uh, uh, especially in the public sector, Danielle, you've worked in, um, how do we think about trying to make those changes in a deliberate and positive way. 
Yeah, I think it's interesting because we're we're coming into a phase now where, um, you know, for the last couple of years, organisations have had to be quite reactive. Um, particularly, I do a lot of work in kind of health and social care, for example. You know, there's been an awful lot of firefighting and you know having to respond to crisis for the last for the last couple of years. And I think we're now starting to see you know a shift towards okay, so more intentionally what can we take away from this what are the lessons what are the things we can keep what are the things we now need to change and adapt to make this sustainable um, for the future so um, I think as we're starting to become more intentional we need to start thinking about you know what you know resources do we have in our organization where do we need to um, develop kind of new capabilities what do we need now for the future and then starting to think about how the people within organizations can help to contribute to that Mm -hmm. and so this has played out differently for women and men hasn't it Um, the, the crisis and the opportunities for the future some things getting better and some things getting worse just kind of play out some of that Louise for us in terms of I mean the gender inequalities that exist already in many most workplaces Mm. Um, and then the kind of opportunities to make things better or actually they start slipping back again into into kind of problematic context I think that's a that's a really interesting question and issue that that everyone is grappling with to some extent. And I think probably we we all saw um, lots of headlines about some of the gender inequalities sort of during the lockdown periods, where you know uh, women, particularly women who were carers either for children or for for other family members, were sort of having to do the burden of the sort of domestic responsibilities whilst trying to um, continue working. So we saw a lot about that, and it sort of comes back to what I was saying of not quite being quite sure where we are at the moment because. I think there was a lot of um, hope, perhaps, that this kind of hybrid working might help to balance out some of that that sort of uh, some of the gender issues that we saw that that life could perhaps be a little bit more balanced for people um, and that there would be recognition of some of those issues. Um, But interestingly, what we saw when things sort of, I I suppose, kind of over the past year or so, when things have started to sort of shift back towards more of a normal um, work life for people, um, there's been quite a lot of pressure on people to say, do not work from home anymore. You know, this is and it's almost like there's this kind of uh, slightly dual thing about, you know, be present, be back, look like you're committed. And if you stay at home, you know, are you doing kind of the, the drudge work, really? Are you not important? Are you not seen to be kind of, you know, dynamic and, and back in the space? So I think a lot of people are thinking, gosh, what do I do? I thought things had changed, but perhaps they haven't. So at the moment, I think the kind of the scales have tipped back again a little, maybe a little bit too quickly. Um, but I, I think it's something that um, organisations will certainly have to consider uh, and look at, you know, where these kind of inequalities are, are arising. And I think it's something that individuals are going to have to grapple with immensely as well. You know, do we have to be this presenteeism? Is it, it's been shown, certainly in a lot of the research I've done, it's been shown to affect women quite significantly. Is that going to happen again? Um, so is there, at the core of this, is there a question of trust then? You know, organisations trusting the people that they employ, people trusting each other to do the work. Mm. And as you've mentioned, presenteeism, uh, just because you happen to be at a particular location doesn't mean to say you're working better or worse. Depends on the other kind of culture of the organisation. It's perfectly possible to be working full and perhaps too much at home if you're on 
Zoom all the time. <laughs> um, but the kind of the culture of the work de- determines that kind of level of trust, doesn't it? Does it? Is that what you found? I think a lot of that comes down to sort of the line manager employee relationship as well. I think, you know, there are some line managers who, you know, couldn't have imagined having, you know, um, their, their team members working not under their direct supervision, you know, for long periods of time. And now they've realised that actually it is possible and that they can trust them a lot more than they um, they previously thought. And then there's some that, you know, have, have got, almost gone the other way as well. And that kind of distrust has, has kind of, you know, bred within their teams as well. And that will be quite, it'll be quite interesting to see how that kind of, kind of plays out. And I think um, going back to what Louise was saying before, I think we're going to see kind of the culture of organisations now. We're going to see it as a differentiator for a lot of workers. There'll be there'll be some organisations that really want their employees to come back and that kind of you need to be present in the office, you know, to contribute will be a part of the working life. And then there'll be other organisations that are, are much more flexible about that. And eventually employees will, you know, move you know, to the, the ones that want more of a remote work from home kind of lifestyle will move to those organisations. The ones that really want the community of working, you know, in an in a, in, in-person environment will gravitate towards those. But that's going to take a long time for that to, to shake out. And, and mm-hmm. so we're going to see it become kind of a, a differentiator between organisations, I think. Well, let's open up a different kind of space then as we think about the, the world of work. Um, the flexible opportunities there that we've been hearing about, maybe people will... The, the workforce will move in one direction. Organisations may have to change in order to accommodate those views. Um, so we've had working from home, a um, t- lot of talk about work-life balance, but then emerging into this space of ideas about the four-day w- week, mm. the 180-100 model, 100% of the pay, 80% of the work, 100% of the productivity is the kind of offer and a number of experiments now now going on. Some countries like Finland are moving quite quickly towards this idea. Might we be at a point where where what we think of as the working week might be about to change in quite kind of larger ways? So it's not just about whether you work at home or at work, the culture of that, but it might be that the actual kind of structure of work changes, the norms of that change as well. I think that's a really interesting point, um, and I think it's it's been fascinating to see that evolve really um, quite recently. And that is a, a change that, personally, I think is is a very positive change because we are looking at, you know, where does this balance of work and home take place? You know, so many people are with, you know, it started with the emergence of smartphones. You know, h- however long ago that was, that people are working at all sorts of different hours and often to suit them. And I think that's something that we we touched on a moment ago when we talked about the kind of the trust that organisations need to have with their employees. Um, I, I saw quite a lot written about when, when people talked about the kind of the hybrid return to work, people were talking about perhaps the what we consider the, you know, the office, the headquarters, would be just a place of where ideas get thrown around. But you actually do that. You go home and you do the work whenever suits you. Um, so I think... A, it could be really interesting in terms of how those kind of normal rhythms of the working life of working life and the working week shape. And I think also in terms of some of the inequalities that we touched on as well, um, people, particularly women, have been talking about this for a long time now. You know, we, we need a, a balance in the way that we work. We need to have time to be able to do the other things in life that are 
equally important, but we need to be trusted to be able to do what is expected of us. And I think, I hope that, that that's quite a positive shift in towards trust. But, you know, you can't guarantee that, that um, every organisation has those levels of trust, of course. So it brings us back to culture. Yes, and, and, and um, deliberate or accidental silencing. You know, if you're not mm. if you're not listening to the to the voices of people who wish to to have models that work for them mm. better, um, and it's not just a binary separation of of, of women and men, it'd be lots of different kind of cultures of work, how people perceive what they are doing and what they're being paid for, and how that can fit into the other things that we do. And we already know that we're not that people, most people are not going to stay in one career for life. We've accepted mm. that kind of change. But now there's lots of other ways that we think about about um, how, how, how people's engagement within the workplace could help to change it. I mean, when you're looking at organisational change, is that a kind of important part of, of, of uh, hearing what people want and what they think would work better? Danielle? Definitely, I think, yeah, listen, being able to listen to the different voices within the organisation um, in terms of what they want, but also during the change process, I think is really important. And I think a lot of the, you know, the models that we have for voice during change, you know, using, you know, change agents to gather focus groups, working groups, consultation, a lot of these systems are, um, you know, can be quite inflexible. Um, in the way we do it, if you don't happen to be there on the day that the announcement is given or the opportunity to speak, you know, is there, then maybe you don't get a voice, you know, in, in the way things are going. And I think some of those, you know, consultation kind of systems that we have within organisations, you know, are not particularly flexible. And that's probably something that is going to need to change, particularly if kind of, you know, who is present in the workplace and at what times um, is going to change. So I think we need to think a little bit more openly about how we can capture that voice in a slightly more dynamic way um, and feed that into the processes. A bit. So when you're advising about that, um, it, again, is there's presumably not a, a simple separation between private sector, public sector, the culture of the specific organisation, would it be right to say that's the key determinant? You can have good context in private and good context in public and bad and bad. Um, presumably, but then when you're coming in to advise, what what sorts of things are you saying? I mean, I'm thinking particularly about if you'd asked the question 30 years ago, there would have been in most organisations fewer women working there, and now the numbers have increased, certainly not above glass ceilings, it would appear yet. Um, at that hearing those voices and then implementing them is going to be an important part of what you end up with, which we hope would be something better. Yeah, absolutely. And and yes, you can have good and bad in, you know, in both contexts, in public and in private. I think some of these things are very transferable um, across them. And I think in terms of what advice, you know, we give to organisations about capturing that voice, I think it, it has to be more about kind of, you know, how the organisation deals with voice generally. So how confident do people feel to ask for what they want? How confident do people feel to speak out when they when they see something um, that's going wrong? You know, I had a research study a few years ago about a hospital um, where there was, you know, very kind of catastrophic failure over over a number of years. And actually, when you look at it, it's, it's, it's the micro decisions, it's the, the small opportunities that people had to say something and didn't say something that really made the difference. And cumulatively over time, you know, that that lack of voice and that silencing, within the organisation, you know, led to these these much larger failures that just weren't picked up and weren't corrected mm. um, earlier. So I think a huge amount of it comes down to 
whether people feel they're able to say something. You know, it doesn't have to be making a big deal out of something, but just being able to put their ideas forward, ask questions, you know, um, suggest different ways of doing things, um, make suggestions, you know, ask questions and things like that. I think it's really important. So that's a kind of creative space, a creative opportunity, isn't it? I mean, if you've got however many people in an organisation you have, they will have ideas as to how to make it better. Um, And the more diverse they are, the more of those ideas are going to come forward and the more chance you have of of getting something that's really innovative. So, Louise, when when you're kind of thinking about, you did some work on comparing the City of London with with, um, Wall Street and New York. Very interesting comparison, um, kind of sharp-edged one, perhaps, um, (laughs) in terms of kind of the history of how we understand those kinds of places. what did you learn? What lessons for improvement did you get from Gosh, um, from those kinds of contexts? They're very particular workplaces, aren't they? Um, they are not particularly friendly, perhaps to to individuals. Uh, kind of certainly a um, a, a sharp edged mm. culture, if I can put it that way. Yeah, absolutely. Um, quite quite exclusive cultures, which is interesting because a lot of the rhetoric from organisations based in those particular sectors or particular geographical areas is all about opportunity and inclusion and, you know, come along. And uh, some of the people I interviewed who, who worked in those spaces said, this is a little bit like a casino. You know, you come in and you think, I've got a chance here. And some of them did have a chance and took it and it worked for them. Other people may have had a chance at some point in their lives, but then life got in the way, as it so often does, and other things happened. And they suddenly found that they were excluded from these these, these um, organisational spaces, which in a, in a sense operate almost as clubs, um, which can can be great. And I'm not, you know, not, not knocking all the opportunities that are there for some people. But if you suddenly find you don't fit, it can be very, very brutal. Mm. So I've got to ask, you know, is that is that more brutal for women than men in those organisations? I think I think. Or does d- it just depend on whether you got on the inside or not somehow? Yes and no, really. Um, I think the kind of the brutality affects men and women. Um, I, I spoke to many men who had had some some really um, quite quite difficult situations that they'd had to deal with. And, and when I talk about, which I do sometimes when I'm, I'm uh, researching uh, or writing, I talk about the kind of the precarious nature of the work there. And of course, I don't mean precarious in the way that it's usually understood of people who are really struggling to to survive. Um, a lot of these people are very, very well paid. So to an extent, you know, yeah, there's, a, there's a balance there that has to be made. But um, there are certainly people that felt nervous every every day because they thought they might lose their jobs. And that, that affects men just as much as it does women. What I found really interesting from a, um, a gender point of view was that if you take, say, the City of London, for example, it there is a gender balance there. There are it's roughly 50-50 split. There are as many women there working very hard, um, some of them doing extremely well, but at a general level working at a slightly lower level than a lot of the men. And what I found particularly interesting was just um, being physically present in that space. You don't see the women. They don't tend to congregate the way that men do outside the pubs or on the streets or using the kind of the spaces of the city almost as, a, as, as office space, really. Uh, the women were much more invisible. Um, there are, I think there are lots of reasons, which I, I won't you know, go into huge detail now, but uh, it's not the place. But I think there are some reasons for that, that, that women felt very um, pressured, felt that this thing about presenteeism, I'd better be seen to be in the office, not wandering around. Um, 
and just didn't kind of spatially own where they were, the organisation that they worked in. Um, so, yeah, I, I think there are some really fascinating uh, things to study when we look at these particular areas where industry sector and geographical space collide. Um, and of course, that was particularly interesting to when suddenly that all changed overnight, really, with the pandemic. <laughs> exactly, exactly. So the, the, the notion of the, of the workplace, where people might congregate, interact, tell stories to each other, um, go out and do things together, shifts fundamentally. But for what men and women in those particular contexts, those kind of high-pressured finance contexts, the lived experience is very different if, if um, as you've described it, um, women have other things to be concerned about, um, generally speaking, even though you've got a balance of, of, of labour force. Yeah, and I think, again, for, for some of the, the women that I spoke to, um, it was that sense of not feeling that it was really the place for them, that they were there, um, as somebody put it, on sufferance, you know, that we might be asked to leave at any point. She knew rationally that that wasn't necessarily going to happen overnight, but she felt that, she she mentioned things like, you don't see the other side of life here, it doesn't exist, there are no schools, shops, leisure. Now, that's not true, and she knew it wasn't true, you know, there are, there are even schools in, in the City of London, there are certainly shops and cafes and restaurants, but what she meant was those things get pushed out of the frame and she felt that as a woman she was also being pushed out her experience um, was being pushed out of the frame um, and it happened to, to some men as well who'd you know um, suffered things like maybe some illness or some trauma or some some life experience um, so yeah t- tough tough place to work I think um, yeah. so you've described a kind of um, it's not survival of the fittest but it's survival of certain subsets mm. of 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 the workforce who over time are going to progress because they haven't fallen away for one yeah, reason or another yeah, you know yeah. and the falling away just means people saying well you know what you know i'm just prioritizing this over that you know being home to look after the kids to pick them up from school uh, which would change as we were saying if you had a four day week or you are working in a hybrid model where you're only you know, in the thing called the workplace two days a week, well, you can do some of that other stuff. And it might actually then change the bit in the workplace as well. I mean, that yeah. when you're thinking about organisational transformation and that kind of change, Danielle, um, and you're seeing how the journey that individuals and organisations go on, are, are we are we kind of picking up some of that sort of, that opportunity for, I suppose I'm interested in the creativity that people can bring to the workplace and whether whether the workplace is just not interested in it or creates this this competitive environment that you were describing, Louise. Yeah, I think it's, it's interesting kind of that relationship sometimes between you know, change and innovation because, I mean, I've certainly looked at some, you know, really big change projects in very large public sector organisations and often, you know, change there is is very planned, very, you know, guided by policy, you know, they know what they have to do and they have to meet, you know, certain targets or they have to move in a particular direction. Um, And it's interesting when that starts to filter down through the organisation and you're trying to empower people to get on board, you know, with change. Sometimes employees see this as an opportunity, you know, to to bring forward those innovative ideas and, and put forward kind of solutions and um, sometimes there's a place for that and sometimes sometimes there isn't so um, you know one thing I'm always whenever I work with kind of you know project managers change managers and organizations um, they always talk a lot about kind of the balance between on the one hand needing to implement what they need to implement and not get distracted by what they sometimes describe as the noise of you know uh, 
you know, person, this person on the floor has got this great idea for this tiny little thing that they, you know, they also want to incorporate in the change and not getting distracted by that noise and thinking about the bigger picture, but also wanting to harness that um, that innovative energy and that creativity of the workforce in finding solutions to pro- problems that emerge throughout the implementation process. So they often talk about this kind of being pulled in different directions and this ambiguity that they experience, you know, in their role as as kind of change agents. Um, and thinking about, you know, you know, who am I responsible to? Is it is it the senior leaders of this organisation and the government and the policymakers in, in trying to bring something about, or is it, you know, the you know the the frontline employees who maybe I used to be one of them, you know, up until I started in this role, or, or you know that I, I can relate to, you know, the struggles on the on the ground, you know, on the front line that that they're having, and how can I help them, um, you know, solve the real problems that they have, um, kind of in the field as well. So yeah, so I think that particular kind of middle manager project manager kind of change role is something I'm really interested in and how those individuals kind of navigate that space and understand that space for themselves um, and pull together all those different kind of ties and strings that they have to kind of juggle Mm. wear all the different hats that they have to wear Mm. um, in that that's something that I, I find really interesting and that's something I'm kind of focusing on quite a lot in my research at the moment. Very interesting. So it is partly the kind of communications and the stories that we tell to each other. It's interesting how how an idea might be might be called noise, as you said, um, if it's not welcome. But if it's welcome, maybe it fits the model better or maybe it really does kind of, you know, jab someone in the eye to make a big change probably that would be called noise as well. So, I mean, I'm just kind of interested in how you, you've looked at communications and, and the storytelling um, uh, of, of organisations to themselves and to the outside world. I mean, how how does that then become... Because you need to kind of tell a story about we're going from A to B or bad to good. I mean, that's usually what, what people are talking about. Or we're going to hide some of the bads, as you were saying, Louise, um, that might be kind of part of... Of, of the some of those organisations. Yeah, um, it's all about that that interpretation and the way that we, you know, we tell the stories to ourselves and, and then, of course, we tell those stories to other people as well and we help them try and make sense of something, you know, by telling our stories and trying to influence, you know, the way that they are interpreting, you know, change. And change is really, um, it's a very pivotal moment for a lot of people, you know, it really kind of shakes things up, you know, in the workplace and things that made sense and the stories that we told ourselves before suddenly don't make sense anymore. So we have to start telling ourselves, you know, a new story about what we do in our day-to-day life and 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 how we add value, you know, to, to ourselves and, and to the organisation. And we have to start retelling, uh, you know, a lot of those stories. And so some of my research has looked at kind of, you know, which of those kind of stories land best those that are more ideological more future looking uh you know tend to land better but at the same time you can't you know ignore those you know the the stories of tension that come through or the all the stories of um you know struggles that come through as well really influence the way people um interpret their their experience in the moment so you know when you hear an announcement that your department's going to be restructured. If you had a really negative experience of that before, that's the story you're, you're telling yourself about what's going to happen You know, right now. If you had a really positive experience before, then you might be telling yourself a story about the opportunities that are going to be presented mm-hmm. um, to yourself um, and things like that as well. So yeah, that interpretation, the way we frame things um, is all based on our previous and current you know, experiences that we have and every individual is going to be unique in that. Um, and that's, I think that's one of the things that makes change so hard for organizations is that 
an organisation is made up of lots of individuals who've had lots of different experiences and what communication you you give out, you know, organisation-wide is going to land with different people in different ways um, and they're going to interpret it in different ways and the way they interpret it over time is probably going to change as well as, exactly. they, as they start to live the experience and as they start to, um, you know, put together what's happening in reality versus what I've been told uh, and pick out the inconsistencies and pick out where there's follow through and all those kind of things. And all of that is going to shape um, the way they view that process and how much they resist or conform, you know, to what the organisation wants. And if and if you're, I mean, it partly this uh, strikes me as partly a, about whether we frame the thing called work. If the organisation thinks, I'm, I'm, you know, we're here to think about the thing called work. Um, if you shift to a four, three-day week, four-day working week, three days off, suddenly that looks very different to a five-two model um, where it's mm. just kind of a bit of a weekend and then you'll be back to work soon. Is that the people have got more to bring to the thing called the workplace because three days of each week are not any longer being called work. But that could be said to be the same thing for a hybrid model, where if you're in two days and um, at home for three, well, the kind of potential to bring something different to the workplace is is geared up, perhaps. Perhaps perhaps we think about it in a different kind of way. Um, I mean, you've talked about the craft of work, Louise, mm. you know, the kind of nature of, of... And we kind of understand that word craft to mean something about kind of speciality and expertise developed over time and um, pride in the thing that you're creating. Um, how does that play into the that thinking about the craft of work? How have you seen that kind of play out as, as a way of thinking about work in itself? I think, I think like... It's a lovely notion. I mean, it's kind <laughs> of... <laughs> I think like many of these things, like you say, it's a lovely notion. It's, it's, it respects, I think, there is there is some respect behind it that, you know, everyone has something very individual to bring to the work that they do. Um, and, and I'm not talking necessarily about, you know, hugely specialised jobs, but everybody brings, you know, their, their own experiences, their own history, their own particular attributes to whatever it is they're doing at, at, at whatever level. Um, but I think the... The difficulty, if you like, is that a, a lot of organisations may espouse these kinds of things and say, yeah, you know, we, we really want to see your own individual views, talents. But of course, as Danielle was saying, these things can often get shut down. And that's when people think nobody is listening to me, but I've got experience of this in another organisation. Can I bring this? And of course, people are saying, no, 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 because our organisation is all about X, Y, Z, not you know ABC. Um, so people can feel very dispirited very quickly and feeling that their own particular attributes aren't contributing and I think what you were saying about um, having a shift in kind of the, the rhythm of the week might help that it might help people feel more that they've got more space for themselves to develop and to bring some of those things back into the workplace um, it, it's it's all very kind of it's all, it's all on blank paper at the moment really isn't it we haven't really seen that happening um, but but yeah I, I think it's hopeful yeah, and I think the other thing that the you know potentially this this rebalancing of the week could bring in is that kind of relationship between you know how much rest and how much time we spend at work as well. I think you know people bring themselves and their unique skills and abilities and and um, you know experiences to the workplace. The more sort of rest time they have the more they're able to bring that creativity in and mm. bring those kind of unique parts of themselves you know in in that slightly more concentrated you know four 
four-day week, for example. Um, so it's about kind of giving them that balance between kind of restoring and then creativity. And you need to restore yourself more to be more creative. I think that's very interesting. And it, it may be that the, uh, the I mean, if we think of the kind of context of the of, of the city of London and New York, as you were saying, Louise, that if you're if you're in upstate New York or Connecticut or in your in the home counties traveling four hours a day into the thing called work, and you've no longer need to spend four hours of your day doing that in the commute. Well, crikey, that's a lot of time to do something different. Mm. If you've just got to walk from one room to another room to get on your computer or to go to a Zoom meeting, it might not be so good as being in the with other people. But actually, if you've just saved yourself four hours a day, the next question comes, well, how are you going to use that? Uh, and women might say, ah, yes, well, that means, you know, I'm just going to be expected to do more home teaching because the kids have, mm. you know, got more homework or I'm expected to do more work at home. Um, but equally, that might change that side of things as well. I, I, well, I think there's, there's, a, there's a couple of really interesting points there. That The first is that, yes, ideally, it would give people more chance to rest, recuperate. Um, I've been speaking to a lot of people lately who have um, suffered some kind of trauma or illness, which has kept them away from work for some time. And and one of the common themes they uh, discuss, and of course, this is very relevant to people that, that, that were ill with COVID, is that you have to jump back onto the roundabout of work. It doesn't stop for you. You have to kind of take a deep breath and, and leap. And that can be really hard if you're not feeling you know, physically able or mentally quite quite with it yet. So... Ideally, having a little bit more time to to kind of recuperate, to think about other things can might be able to help with that rhythm of, of having to jump back onto the roundabout at times. Um, but the other thing I think is could potentially really interesting is what this kind of hybrid working shift, if, if it does happen, is going to do to these urban centres of work. You know, um, if people aren't commuting in every single day, they're not going to the regular sandwich shop or coffee shop or whatever what what does that happen what happens to these big spaces that are you know huge great dominant organizational monoliths um will that change will that will that mean that you know there was there was quite a lot spoken um after the first lockdowns in in the uk about kind of suburbia taking off again and suddenly people kind of you know using the recreational spaces that we don't usually think of in the working week but people were out in the parks and and so on. So that that could be really interesting. You know, are the places in which we work going to change fundamentally and come back into residential areas? Um, so I'm I'm kind of really personally very interested in seeing how that that plays out. Mm, yes, um, the and and it, it it's not just the stories we tell. It's it's going to be the the role models that we have in the, in the different ways of working. And if we're if we're kind of in the context of inventing a completely new way, we may not have have the good role models. Um, uh, Maria Tatar um, from Harvard has just written a fantastic book called The Heroine uh, with a Thousand and One Faces, which is an echo of, of Joseph Campbell's book, which was The Hero with a, Th- a Thousand Faces. And most stories, fables, tales are um, very dominated by, by male figures going out into the world and doing stuff and coming back again. And she makes the point that, that, that not only... Um, uh, have women been relegated to different sorts of roles but they're not there to be role models which is why um, Madeline Miller writes about Circe in a completely different way and people go oh gosh you know so she wasn't a baddie turning people into pigs actually she was kind of a model for people so 
I'm interested in how those stories might create models, as you were say, saying, to jump back on again, um, whether whether people have been through injury or accident or difficulty or social change um, uh, or a work break or indeed, as we've said, um, you know, a completely different way of seeing the world uh, through the, the eyes of the pandemic. Storytelling and kind of role models for change. Yeah, so I think a lot of it, I think, is going to come down to how leaders in organisations signal and give cues you know, to to their employees about, you know, there's now a renegotiation that everybody is going through of what is acceptable, uh, you know, behaviour in in the workplace. Like, do I need to stay later than my boss now? Do I need to come in early? You know, is it okay to take a, you know, a lunch break? If I'm working at home, like, do I need to be logged on the whole time? How responsive do I need to be to email? Um, You know, can I go for a dentist appointment in the middle of the day? You know, um, whether those things were allowed or not before, things have now changed, uh, either for better or or for worse. And so there's a whole renegotiation that's going on there. And I think um, rather than sort of specific role models, I think it will be people will look to leadership for guidance, uh, you know, on on those things and them modelling those behaviours as well. So, um, you know, if your boss... Uh, you know, goes out for a doctor's appointment in the middle of the day, then you know it's okay for you to do that as well. So I think it's been very interesting that we're almost starting a blank slate again Mm. in in a lot of cases about, you know, what is acceptable and what is, you know, the the way we do work, what are the expectations in terms of our behaviour. Yeah, I I really agree with that. Um, And I think think where where gender is concerned... um, you know, you know, I'm kind of going to say this. There are going to perhaps be some issues there that that uh, that we need to think about. Um, I absolutely love that you mentioned Madeline Miller and Circe. My, my my daughter will love that if she listens because she's obsessed with that book. Um, so she should be. It's yeah, brilliant. it's yep. wonderful. Yep. Yeah. Um, but I think you know we, we've 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 known for some time now about this this um, this issue called um, the glass cliff that that arises when when women are in leadership positions. And that you know the theory goes that quite often uh, organisations look to uh, to appoint a woman when an organisation is going through um, a period of crisis, and there could be lots of reasons for that. It could be a very um, kind of symbolic need to have some sort of nurturing, maternal kind of care that that, that women are you know essentialised as as providing. Uh, but of course, what then happens is that. Often the examples given are that, that that crisis then almost sticks to the woman and she's seen as she's associated with a failure, um, if there is a failure. So in a way that perhaps doesn't happen to male leaders who, as, as you mentioned, Jules, are often seen as kind of you know heroic and striding out. Um, I don't know whether um, the pandemic might have changed some of that because we did see some examples of leadership, you know, worldwide, like Jacinda Ardern, who was seen as a real kind of, you know, a a beacon for for how to manage um, COVID. Um, So it might be that that people are taking a slightly different view now and thinking, well, we do need this kind of, um, what's the term, the post-heroic leadership to come into play and that perhaps... Um, you know, I'm, I'm sounding as if there is always a gender binary. I, I, I just mean that those those um, those particular characteristics, partic- yeah, yeah, that are associated yeah. with women, um, might might have changed that, and that we can see that there's a bit more of a balance, a bit more rhythm. Maybe you know, if your if your boss, who happens might happen to be female, is working a four day week, there's then as Danielle says, you know, that's modelling something quite different. So um, yeah, we we can we can hope. We can. 
Well, let's let's kind of ask for your two or three priorities and hopes then for the future. Um, as we look forward into the 2020s, we've we've had this big disruption. Of course, there are long-standing processes of structural inequalities, austerity, um, changes to the to the to the nature of of work that have been kind of creeping up for a long period of time. Now that we're looking forward, um, what would be your two or three priorities and hopes, which could be improvements or it could be the removal of negatives? Um, so I mean, just kind of what well, off off the top of your head, what what would you? And I'm kind of talking about all forms of work, but you could specify if you want um, particular places. I mean, you've talked about kind of place, rhythm, kind of language, norms, the way we relate to each other. Um, uh, these are often very. It strikes me very often things that are not discussed in the workplace you know what you do discuss is the next meeting this policy this paper that needs to be written you know it's all kind of instrumental whereas actually the cultures of work um, might open up a different kind of space i think one thing i'd like to see is a less prescriptive um view of how we go about work uh, in organisations. I'd like to see organisations being more open to finding their own way rather than copying, you know, what the norms in their industry were, for example. In public sector, that might be, you know, interpreting a policy and implementing a policy in a way that makes sense at a local level for the local demographic, for the local organisations and partnerships, uh, you know, and demographic needs um, in those areas. We see signs that things might be moving in that direction, but how the, how that plays out, we're not sure. I, I would like to think that there is more scope now for local interpretation and for organisations and individuals, teams, departments within organisations to have a bit more freedom to do things in a, in a way that suits them um, and the people who are you know involved in in doing that work and that those people I guess the second thing then would be that those people have more of a voice and a more of an opportunity to uh, put their ideas forward to be creative to have their own kind of be able to make their own unique you know stamp on the work that they do and be able to you know craft their work into something that is fulfilling and enjoyable um and that presents opportunities for them yeah. uh, moving forward so yeah. i think that's probably the so trust is in the core of that a little bit isn't yeah. it yeah yeah yeah, yeah. yeah fun, funnily enough that that's kind of leads me on to what i was going to say which is i hope that uh we, we've talked a lot about issues around trust and the relationship between sort of individuals in the workplace I would hope that people can be seen as as grown ups. You know, we're all grown up in the workplace by by default. We're not at we're not at school anymore, um, and we we are able to mainly manage our lives quite well. Um, we all have some hiccups now and then, but but that that bosses don't have to worry so much about well, is this person doing you know ten to ten hours a day or whatever I'm paying them for, and to understand that things may happen. Maybe at slightly different times. Some things may happen very quickly. Other things may take more time. But that people can kind of have a little bit more control over their own work life. And and I suppose related to that is is the point I was making about a shift in where we work as well as how we work. Um, I I appreciate I'm talking about people who have access to to nice um, domestic setup or, or you know adequate domestic setup to work from. And I know that doesn't apply to everyone. But if you are lucky enough to 
works uh, live somewhere that you're quite happy living how amazing to be able to go and walk in the local park at lunchtime or pick up your child from school without feeling that kind of pressure of oh my goodness I wasn't seen you know my boss didn't see me in the workplace but your boss knows you're still going to get the work done Um, I think that that is going to take a little bit of a shift in mentality but I'm hoping that we've kind of got the evidence that that did work um, and can work again so I think that's they're my kind of hopes. Mm. (laughs) So the rhythms of work uh, may change more um, as mm. we bring these ideas to into play and the understanding of where the place of work and the culture that goes with it um, is going to um, shape up and change um, uh, in the years ahead. So, um, Danielle Tucker, Louise Nash, thank you very much indeed. It's been a pleasure having you on. Thank you for having Thanks. us. Thanks for having us. Yeah, it's been great. That was Louder Than Words. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the podcast. Have a look at the website for more information and do rate the pod if you can.